0: The intro song, Fishing for Pets, is written and composed by Alan Goldscher from his latest release, Live at the Lakeview Lounge. Hey guys, hope you're having a good day. Our guest today is Swati Chaturvedi, the co-founder and CEO of the investment platform PropelX. Swati has focused PropelX as an investment leader in technology and science startups. In this episode, we'll also get into the importance of investors doing their due diligence and how seriously Propel X takes its role working under the best interest standard of conduct. Swati is in a unique position, working with a high net worth of clients while also staying attuned to the needs of smaller investors. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Swati. All right, guys. So uh, we've had a nice run of guests here with the alternative asset space. We had a nice conversation with the Alt Exchange team. And we also just had a, a conversation with Acquire. And today we add to that list with Swati from PropelX, a uh, great company, uh, another great investment platform. Swati, thank you for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Horatio. Very nice to be here. Excited.
0: Yeah. When we found out about PropelX and the kind of uh, platform that you are and the companies that you have. And so I think that you also have a very uh, unique background, you know, as as you set up the company. So I was wondering, you know, if we could talk a little bit about first, you know, introduce yourself and kind of how you became uh, the CEO of this platform and what your background is.
1: Sure, absolutely, happy to do that. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, as you just mentioned, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Propel X, which is an alternatives investment platform. Broadly, we enable accredited investors to invest in. Three types of alternative assets, which includes direct investments in startups, investments into venture capital funds, and investments in hedge funds. So that's who we are. Let me talk a little bit about myself and a brief journey. So I grew up in India, and I came here for graduate studies. I went to Berkeley, then I went to MIT, too much education, became a management consultant for five years, Uh, went back to Sloan to get my MBA full-time. And after that, I started my investing journey. So I was briefly at Temasek, which is a sovereign wealth fund of Singapore, and then um, at Siemens Venture Capital doing growth equity investments. And then I joined a private equity fund here in San Francisco Bay Area. And I guess once I got to SF, this place has a vibe. It has a startup vibe, right? And I discovered my true passion really is in startups. It's in early stage companies. And I'm passionate about science and technology, just given my backgrounds. uh, It is my enduring interest since a very young age. So I thought maybe I could join some of these companies as an angel investor. And I visited various angel groups here in the Bay Area, looking for uh, investment opportunities. And I found, to my dismay, that two things. One was the investment opportunities were all social, local, mobile, solo, mo as they used to say at that time. This was way back in 2013, 2014. And that's really not fascinating or of interest to me at all. And uh, I wanted something more meaningful. Um, I wanted to invest in companies that are leveraging technology to change the course of humankind. And so I started MIT Angels. And uh, the other issue, which has always been the case, I mean, I was an accredited investor, but I'm not like, I wasn't like this super millionaire out there, you know, who can invest like 25k or 100k in multiple companies and be none the worse for it. Uh, Honestly, I was the average accredited investor, wanting to invest small amounts of money, maybe 10k, maybe 15k here and there and making a diversified portfolio and I thought that was challenging with the angel groups because typically the minimum is 25k to enter into a startup investment so anyway so I started MIT angels with the intent to focus the group on what we started calling at that time deep technology startups and since then the world picked it up and it became a global thing you know which I'm super happy about but essentially the mission of the MIT angels group was to invest in companies that are leveraging breakthroughs in science and engineering to change the trajectory of humankind. And that continues to be the mission. In 2015, having realized that there is a much bigger opportunity there. So we opened the group up, not just to the multimillionaires of uh, MIT, but really all of the alumni who were accredited investors. And honestly, it's not that hard to earn 200K, which is the threshold for being an accredited investor after about 10 years of workex you do become one so we got a pretty large audience and i realized there's a big opportunity here where aspiring investors are separated from startups that are fundraising and so i started propelx with a view to connect the accredited investors worldwide with deep technology startups so that was our starting point which was we really focused on deep tech startups and then you know, we've been through a journey since then, part of which was we expanded beyond startups and, you know, first beyond deep tech startups into other kinds of startups and then beyond startups into hedge. So we are onboarding our first hedge fund. We've done venture capital funds. So essentially, PropelX became this platform to invest in alternatives broadly. And like I said, we offer three uh, types of asset classes, hedge funds, venture funds, and startup investments. And startups, honestly, still are our mainstay but we do tend to focus on deep technology companies so that is one the other part of the journey was that our subsidiary i mean we realized that we need to have a solid business model and which also respects the interests of investors right and so along the way we became our subsidiary was registered as a broker dealer with finra and we now adhere to finra guidelines on investor protections on due diligence on other things So that's who we are. I mean, that's the journey. And, you know, once we started doing this, we got lots of investor interest. Franklin Templeton became an investor in our company. Of course, MIT Angels, TSVCs, and a bunch of other uh, investors joined our journey and have been supporting us, and we are super grateful to them.
0: Yeah, I know the the MIT uh, Angels has, like, different subsidiaries, right? There's different cities, right? I I saw there's one in Boston, New York City, you know, uh, the Bay Area. So it's interesting all the different, you know, maybe connections that you have across the country talking about that fiduciary duty, the broker dealer kind of relationship that you have with the investors. I know you've talked a lot about conducting due diligence. and That's something I kind of want to want to bring up as we get into the platform, because I think that's, that's really an important topic. You know, when, when you as a platform bring up these offerings, right, I, I guess the investor assumes that, Hey, the platform has my best interests in mind already. That would be my kind of logic. But you've still been an advocate for, even if they are bringing these, these assets up, make sure you do your due diligence. And I'm kind of wondering what two things, why you feel that way, number one, and, and, and number two, like, you know, what does it mean to do your due diligence, right? How can an average sort of investor, you know, even bring it down to like a retail investor, right? How can they do their due diligence?
1: Yeah, no, that, those are really great questions. Thank you for bringing this topic up. It's very close to my heart. This idea of due diligence, this idea of best interest. So so best interest is different from fiduciary responsibility, right? Fiduciary means you're handling someone else's money on their behalf. Because we're a broker-dealer, we're not exactly doing that. We are regulated by regulation, best interest, actually. Precisely those words. Which basically says that the broker-dealer always has to put their client's best interest ahead of their own. So we adhere to that regulation, not just in letter, but also in spirit. We care. I care. I care about our investors. And the reason we care simply is if our investors don't make you know, returns in the long run, then in the long run, we are dead. You know? So it's super important for them to make returns. And we try our best to get the best opportunities, in our view, onto the platform. Now, what does that mean? So then, you know, what are we doing and what do we expect our users to do? So we are doing two levels of due diligence, right? So the number one thing is curation. I don't think I have a comparison point exactly, but possibly compare Filene's Basement to a Nordstrom where the investment opportunities or the mm, uh, outfits at Nordstrom are more select and you are definitely weighted on hand and foot, right? Now, I'm not suggesting that we will wait on you hand and foot, but... Uh, certainly we go quite far we do the best we can to actually respond to investors now we curate ours is not this 200,000 opportunities on the platform and you know what find what you will out there no we curate opportunities where some of the best VCs are investing and we find ways to get allocations to those opportunities that's where we think we try very hard is get allocations to some of the best investment opportunities. And we've had some examples. We closed decent, where the round was led by QED. We've closed Avails, the round was led by Omron Ventures. We've closed, uh, we've closed Kempower, the round was led by Intel. So these are both early and growth stage opportunities where the rounds are led by top VCs. So that or top VCs meaning uh, <laughs> known VCs right, known reputable VCs, where we try to get these allocations. So that's the first thing that we do. We curate and we fight hard to get into some of these allocations. The second thing that we do, which is um, mandated by FINRA guidelines, is we are obligated to conduct due diligence on the deals that are closing. And so we follow the FINRA guidelines on that. And um, that basically says you have to do things like background checks on the founders. And you won't believe what we have found in some of these cases. Some of these companies, backed by some of the most reputable VCs, you know, sometimes have convicted felons leading them. Sometimes have bad actors leading them. And so we have to, you know, even at that late stage, we have pulled those opportunities from the platform. But we do do that. We make we we review the bank statements to make sure they have money to hit the next milestone. We like to see at least six months of runway among other things, board resolutions to make sure this this opportunity, this investment is authorized, all that kind of good stuff. So we do that and we are, to my knowledge, I don't know that other platforms share this, but I think I believe we are the only ones that actually shares a due diligence report with our users. And they can choose and that really summarizes what we found in terms of the FINRA mandate or FINRA guidelines. You know, what is it that we did and what documents did we review and what did we find? So that's what we do to those two levels of diligence, curation and then what we call broker review or broker due diligence. But still, I think it is incumbent upon investors to do their own due diligence. What does that mean? Now, I'll take the example of Apple or, you know, any other publicly traded company. Even though it is available on, let's say, NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange, you wouldn't blindly invest in it, would you? You would you know, your view, every individual's view, every individual's risk profile and perspective on market and perspective on industry is different from the other. I might say, oh my gosh, this, uh, you know, Apple has a great future. Just giving an example here. And I'm going to invest in it because I'm going to get a big return. Another person might say, oh my gosh, it's already overvalued. So it really depends on that individual. And I do think, that investors keeping their own risk profile and their own backgrounds in mind should conduct some research on the investment opportunities that they're evaluating. So they should evaluate them before making an investment.
0: Yeah. I guess like sometimes the best advice that some people get is invest in the products that you love or, you know, invest in the things that you use every day because if you're using it, chances are somebody else is using it. So, you know, that means growth or market share. Like I'm still kind of like, interested in that idea of doing your own due diligence. I mean, do you think that, uh, that that would mean like going through the files that you provide, maybe the documents that you provide, like you said, um, everything that you provide on your platform and then going through some of those details?
1: So that is a starting point, yes. But one thing that I really advocate is asking questions. And this I've written about, spoken many times. People don't ask enough questions, especially when it comes to science and tech-based companies. You should ask the questions, what is the data that you have to prove that your device or whatever it is actually works? Have you done any testing? So let's say it's a a battery technology company. Okay, tell me, what is the field testing that you've done? How long does this last? How many cycles did you run? Show me the data. Do you have any diagrams, graph charts? I think those are legitimate questions to ask. And then, you know, there's no substitute for common sense. We have laid out a framework, you know, how to think of due diligence. There's various blogs on our on our website, various podcasts, etc., where you think of everything from okay, how big is the market? So is there market potential and is there proven? Has someone actually bought this? To who is your competition? I mean, status quo is often the competition. And why do you think you're better than them? And what makes you succeed? So we host investor calls uh, and These are live and people have the opportunity to ask questions. So the idea should be that you should listen to other people's questions, ask your own. We totally encourage that. We ask a lot of questions on these investor calls. These investor calls are recorded, placed on the platform. So you can always come back and listen to them as many times as you want. And on top, you do still till the very last minute, have the opportunity to ask questions through our platform. We connect you with the startup or whoever the uh, issuer is. And you have the opportunity to withdraw. I think you till the very last minute. So I think those are some things when you ask, okay, how should one do your due diligence? Looking at our files, attending the investor calls, those are starting points. But after that, beyond that, ask questions right do some research oh they said these are the competitors in their pitch deck let me look at the competition you know and let me see what they're doing which is not the same spend a few hours in fact the Kaufman Foundation several years ago had put out uh, research that showed that people, angel investors that conduct due diligence tend to make several times greater returns than those that don't conduct due diligence.
0: that's um you know a, a clinic uh that you just gave on on due diligence and i'm gonna throw a little quip there i think about you know uh, when you were talking about ask questions and b- before throughout i'm thinking of like startups like you know theranos right
1: exactly exactly right people get taken in don't get taken in don't get taken in. ask for data uh, really ask for data i mean sometimes i'm shocked at how people don't ask questions even with a uh, with an online e-commerce platform you can ask for show me the logs of your website show me how the traffic was show me your google analytics right show me how much converted show me your funnel these are like some simple basic questions you can ask show me the how many transactions actually happened uh, show me your bank account statements those are things that you should ask and if it's a science based or a technology based Investment opportunity. Then, like I said, ask about the experiments. Ask about the data that those experiments yielded. Ask about papers. Who has written about it? Send me the papers. You know, Uh, if it has been peer reviewed, I want to see that. Has your technology been talked about? Has it been published? Are your peers talking about this? So, those are relevant questions. In in the case of Theranos, for example, their technology, whatever it was, I don't even call it technology. Their hypotheses (laughs) were not published you know they weren't talked about they had not done the experiments per the scientific method and so that should ring, kind of ring some alarm bells
0: for sure kind of a- along those lines you know investing in startups is risky right inherently risky yes and so it's kind of it's interesting because you said you know you you want to do the best for your investors because if not then there's no reason for you to exist yeah at the same time investors have to i feel like accept that some startups will Will do well, and some will fail. What is your experience with that? Because I find that investors, even with with certain assets that like that decline in value, they get very upset at the at the platform, even though they did go in understanding like there's no guarantee here, right? I mean, you're investing, and it's at your own risk.
1: And that's why, you know, we deal with accredited investors who have, I would say, the net worth. And you know, I'm. That's not to say that non-accredited investors are not smart and sophisticated. Many of them are, absolutely, you know. But at least the government seems to think that people who have a certain net worth are safer losing their money. I mean, that's one thing. But yes, we do highlight the risk every time, every time. And again, here I want to take the opportunity to reinforce that (laughs) statement that, investing in alternative assets as a whole is very risky, very, very risky. They are illiquid. Holding time horizons are very long. In the case of startups, they could be 10 years or more. And there is the chance to lose all of your invested capital, all the money. So never invest more than you can afford to lose 100%. That's like the baseline. Um, And that's why, you know, (laughs) I feel like we should deal with accredited investors. The other thing is, okay, if all you can... Expect or all you can afford to lose is maybe 100, 200, 250, $500, and you invest $500 through a crowdfunding platform. I think you can do that. There's opportunity there. But to be honest, and maybe I have a privileged view, but I just feel even if you made 10x on that, on $500, like what difference would it make? You know, it wouldn't move the needle so much. And so I apologize. I mean, I don't want to appear all kind of privileged and you know but anyway I I do want to mention that these are very very risky and so do people get upset I think in our case we have said it so many times we've also had few much fewer failures I mean we've there's a few companies that have shut down but other than that things are very much going and so I think that is mitigated a little bit but yeah I mean we have to just set the expectations correctly. That firstly, there is very little chance you're going to make that 200x return. But also there is a good chance that you may lose all of your money. And so it is not like a lottery ticket though. It is not. Very often it is characterized as that. But if you look at the data that's coming out of CB Insights, I remember seeing a funnel a long time back and basically it showed that all the companies of the companies that raise seed, almost half go on to their series A. And then a smaller proportion go on to the series B and so on. But out of the 18%, I think 18% or something it was that went on to the series B, but from 54 to 18 so 54% did series A, 18% did series B, and so on. And only 4% got to an IPO. But that is not to say that the companies that disappeared along the way actually died. No, they could be alive and they could have been acquired or they could be running businesses which did not need more capital you know so those data are also biased but that said i do want to highlight the fact that it is not like a lottery at all where the chance of winning a lottery is like one in millions that is not the case here it is better than a lottery and if
0: you do your diligence you improve your chances like you said well even even then like citing that statistic right four percent i mean it's still if, if you consider the lottery ticket if you consider the ipo the lottery ticket right Let's talk about Propel, like a couple of things that stood out. So, you are a platform for accredited investors, um, and it is, uh, you're very deep in, in, in you know, you call it deep tech, science, technology. But from an investor standpoint, there's a, only a $5,000 minimum, which typically you find a little bit of a higher uh, minimum for accredited platforms. You have 0% fees for investors. I read that somewhere. And kind of my third question was uh, the different ways that the investors can make money on the platform.
1: So, yes. Our mission is to mainstream alternative investing. Why? Because if you look at some data, and I'm happy to share some certain SEC reports with you, but there was a report published by the SEC in 2017 which showed that the value of transactions in the private market was about 3 trillion, whereas the value of transactions in the public markets was 1.5 trillion. So private markets are about twice the size of public markets. The SEC says that. They certainly offer the potential for higher returns, right? Um, VC firms, and there's data out there, venture capital has outperformed the public markets take any index since 2006 by a margin. Private equity has outperformed even more. Hedge funds are good hedges against, you know, what's happening today, for example. So privately held assets often offer the potential for higher returns, not the guarantee, but the potential. And there is this phenomenon that more and more private companies are staying private longer and longer, right? Many companies prefer to stay private longer. So the question is, how do people get access to these investment opportunities, which have been the realm of the ultra-rich historically? Is it fair? And the reason I ask that question is, you know that old saying that Poor people work for their money and rich people make their money work for them, right? You've got to make investments to become rich and stay richer. That, at least, is the historical perspective. Now, how do we make this mainstream? How do we bring this to ordinary? I mean, we can start with accredited investors for now, but (laughs) even getting there is challenging, right? The ordinary accredited investor is not like this multimillionaire many times over. So we have to lower uh, the bar the entry point. And that's why we lowered the entry point to $5,000. So to invest in a startup, we accept a minimum of $5,000. We manage our own syndicates, unlike many other platforms, which means we try to provide timely uh, tax reporting, K ones, all the tax documents that you have through the portal. So it's not like some mystical process that will happen. It will happen through your account online and it will happen on time, or at least that's what we strive to achieve. But the other thing really is um, coming back to your idea of fees. Because we manage our own syndicates and we try to do our best. So the fees actually are not 0%. So we are, I'm not sure if any other platform allows this, but we actually empower investors to invest flexible check sizes with flexible fees. Very specifically, if you're a big investor, so certainly on Propel X, we have lots of family offices and venture funds that are active. So if you're a big investor, you're a family office wanting to invest a quarter million in a company, go for it. So there's the opportunity to go direct. And if you're an ordinary investor wanting to invest $5,000 in many different companies, you can go syndicate. So for direct investors, which typically, right, the minimums are really high. Sometimes it's 100K, rarely, but most often it's 200K, 250K. That's the direct investment check size. We charge them a one-time fee of 2%. But for the syndicate investors, um, which is most often the case, we do charge a higher fee. But remember, that is, if you were to invest in a venture fund, you'd be paying 2% every year for about 10 years. You'd pay 20% overall, roughly. In our case, we charge 1 times 7.5% fee. So think of it as like 1.5% over 5 years or 75 basis points over 10 years, right? So we charge that fee and we charge a carried interest. So if you invested in a syndicate, eventually there was an exit or the company was sold to someone and you made a profit, we take 10% of that profit. So we do charge fees and carry. We do charge the issuers, especially in the early stages. Sometimes we charge the issuers, sometimes we don't. Whatever we charge is always disclosed in our fee disclosures. So that's another way in which we are quite different from many platforms. We are... Held to high standards when it comes to disclosure requirements. We have absolutely try to maintain absolute transparency to the best of our abilities when it comes to fees and you're investing in what and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: Let's talk about Profellax. Let's get let's get into those companies. Okay. You know, the, the deep tech. I know I know you're passionate about technology. You, you know, that's something that you've stated uh, numerous times. So and and, and it comes through on the platform. Some of the companies caught my interest in I'm wondering if you could talk about some of them. One of them was, was this uh, C2 Sense, if I could just start that off with that, where it's like, it almost like, I don't. I know it can't, but the idea is that the camera is almost like smelling or kind of detecting change in organic matter. So I was just wondering if you could give us some highlights.
1: Yeah, sure. So C2 Sense is an MIT uh, spin-out technology. It came out of one of the material science labs. So essentially what it is, I mean, and their first, so now they are, applying the technology to many different use cases. But one of their first use cases was, can we detect when produce is going bad, right? So one of the big problems in this world is food waste. So (laughs) you will never... So apples, for example, are harvested once and they're stored there. And you don't know which apples, which crates are going, are ripe. I mean, these are live things or whatever. These are organic things. And some apples may be riper than others. So how do you know which ones to put into the supply chain earlier than the others. So it turns out that you have these really small sensors. They're about that size, like one inch by two inches, for example. And you can draw them. These are basically circuits, right? Circuits that are activated when certain gases are in the uh, atmosphere. And when produce ripens, it releases certain gases. It closes that circuit and current flows. And that current is detected by the sensor and sent to the electronic gadgetry to tell you that this produce is ripe. Put this crate into the supply chain now right? And so the idea is you're able to preempt and prevent food waste by identifying which of the food is ripe enough to put into the supply chain. Same, there was a similar application. This has had many applications detecting gases in hazardous places, small trace amounts of gases, sometimes you can't tell, uh, detecting, you know, certain, (laughs) even in poultry, for example, you have some gases and chicken actually die, believe it or not. So detecting that and preventing that ahead of time. So these are some of the applications uh, of C2Sense. And what was interesting about this company when it came out? So historically, gas sensors are huge. So they are big. They are not portable. So these are big equipment, which is not portable. They cost thousands of dollars. This is a small think of it if you were drawing something on your visiting card with a pencil so it's that small visiting card size small costs a dollar 2 dollars to make so it's like orders of magnitude cheaper you can have many of these sensors in every single crate and you still wouldn't you know exceed the cost of, of that big one big gas sensor so it's much smaller much more portable much cheaper that's the beauty of technology so this was one of the companies that came out of MIT. Actually, we caught them at MIT Angels and then PropelX was created. We helped them through PropelX, and so on. So we've been part of their fundraising journey. It's been amazing to see them grow and prosper. And there are many other such companies uh, that we can talk about, which are super exciting.
0: What, you know, is there another, maybe one other standout? Yeah,
1: yeah, sure. So I would love to talk about this company called Brilliant. And we worked with them, I think about two years ago another um, MIT technology spin-off
0: there's a, there's a theme there there's a theme
1: yeah. well yes <laughs> there's a theme there because that happens to be my alma mater and so <laughs> so we do have these connections and again you know let me first make a disclaimer right now just don't get swayed but by, by what I'm saying I am a technology aficionado right so investors shouldn't think oh she's talking about that so I should go and invest in it Please don't. But I'm just excited about the technology. So ultra reality, what's the next step up from virtual reality? So one of the biggest challenges is with virtual realities, you do have to wear a headset, right? And you lose lose orientation in the real world, your orientation in the real world. And because you're wearing a headset, then you can't work on it for like hours on end. You can't use it for other purposes other than playing games or to be immersive alone. What if you could have the same thing without having to wear a headset, right? And that's what's the next step up from virtual reality, we think, which is ultra reality, which is an immersive IMAX-like experience at your desktop, right? And so think of a two-foot wide monitor bringing to you an IMAX-like experience. So you're sitting in front of it. It encircles you like that. And you look into it and you can see far into the distance and you can see all of the depth and you can see if you're a trader, you could potentially see nine screens stacked on top showing all of the different indices, all of the world's, you know, stock exchanges. And you see that very fine grained depth and resolution, right? And so this is an immersive experience. You turn your head, let's say you're playing a game, you turn your head, you see one side of the car, you turn your head, you see what the other side of the car, let's say you're playing playing a racing game. You know, there's lots of videos for this. And what it is using is basically optical technologies, right? It's a different kind of display coming out of the Media Lab. And um, they are doing really well now, Touchwood, They've gone on to announce many, many, many achievements, including strategic alliances with LG. They won the, the Prism Award for displays in 2022 this year. They were showcased at the CES. I mean, they've achieved lots of good things. But it's an amazing technology. I think they launch or they announced a partnership with a gaming company, among other things. So it's a it's a very interesting technology.
0: I feel like we could that could lead us into a, another hour long discussion on like the metaverse.
1: But this is what the metaverse needs, you know, to be experienced fully. This is what you need.
0: I've talked to a couple of other people, and they said that that's it's doable, you know, and uh, someone. Just an aside, I mean, someone said the metaverse could be where, you know, where family members that are 3000 miles apart can gather and feel like they're right next to each other, you know, and uh, to me, there's nothing more powerful than that. You know, I also wanted to note that you also have a fund and I was wondering if you could talk real quick about that, about the Newton fund and and how that maybe that's different from the the other offerings that you have at Propelex.
1: Yes, absolutely. So Propel X is the umbrella company, right? It's the parent company, is the holding company. It owns a technology platform. But then the various, uh, how should I say, revenue generating entities are subsidiaries. So one of our subsidiaries is Hubble Investments, which is the FINRA member broker dealer, uh, which is held by another holding company called Hubble Holdings. So various layers of separation, but idea being one business line is the investment bank or broker dealer Which is the company that does all the due diligence, offers these investment opportunities on the platform, and is obligated to conduct whatever investor suitability and etc. according to FINRA guidelines. We are regulated. The second entity is our syndicates management business. So whatever syndicates are formed on Propel, like someone has to manage them, right? And someone gets paid uh, the carried interest. And so we have a separate, like I said, we are one of the few platforms that manages our own syndicates. Few meaning I think there's only one other, but I may be wrong. We manage our own syndicates so that we have complete visibility, great user experience, timeliness of reporting, et cetera. And then the third business line is Newton Fund, which is a venture capital fund managed by another of our subsidiaries, Propellex Advisors. And the purpose of Newton Fund... So here we were, you know, seeing excellent deal flow. And we wanted to invest. And people who saw us said, guys, you guys have such great deal flow. I'd love to participate. I don't have the time. Why don't you do it for me? Ideal scenario, you know? So we are already sourcing these great companies through the Propellex platform so then, we can actually also invest um, through a different business unit into these companies, and that's what Newton Fund does. So Newton Fund was meant was raised as a fund to invest in early stage startups in deep technology, and that's what we do. I mean, that was exactly what PropelX was. And here's the great thing: because the fund is investing in opportunities that have already been sourced and diligenced and so on, the fund can ride on the diligence that has already been conducted by the platform. So we. Obviously, are able to charge much much lower fees, et cetera, because we don't we're not spending that amount of money uh, to actually source opportunities, attend investor uh, conferences, et cetera. So that's the purpose of Newton Fund. We've invested, or the fund itself. So we invest selectively. The fund invests selectively in some of the Propelx companies, companies that appear on the Propelx platform. This is totally disclosed on all of our disclosures that the fund is a subsidiary and affiliate can invest in some of these um and we do investments we've invested in i think what 23 companies at this point so far and typically early stage i mean the fund was meant to be early stage now we are doing companies across stages everything from seed to pre-ipo so obviously the fund is not investing in the later stage companies the funds mandate was to invest in early stages so that's what that fund does newton fund
0: is there a different uh like minimum there or or does your status as an investor have to be maybe a little bit different to participate in that fund? So,
1: you know, that was a closed-ended fund, which is to say that we raised money, you know, and then we closed the fund. And that money came only from a few handful of individuals, friends and family. But to your point, yes, there is great interest. And that's why we are going to be starting these propel these funds on PropelX, X, which are going to be our funds. There is demand. Our own customers have said When are you starting your fund? We'd love to invest in it because I don't have the bandwidth to invest in all of these companies and conduct the due diligence separately. So yes, the fund is going to be available on Propel platform, maybe in a month or two, you know, but it's coming.
0: Swati, I want to kind of get, cap it with this and maybe your thoughts on um, the current market, you know, and uh, the investing market. In your position, you know, as a CEO of of this investment platform and, you know, your experience with hedge funds and with other sort of investors, where are we now as a a market? And what does investing look like now where there's fears of of recession, you know, where there's inflation? Are people more scared of their money or are they seeking more opportunities? What's your advice?
1: Oh, advice. Well, let me first disclaim that
0: right away. (laughs) What are your thoughts? You know, what are your insights? Yeah.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. So yes, the market is turbulent. I will admit that readily. There is great volatility. There is uncertainty. And uncertainty breeds fear. Even though I am in the business where if people invest, I make money. But first and foremost, I am a human being. So, And I have empathy for people who are my customers or my users, And also for other human beings. And so I say that if you feel that fear, don't invest. Don't invest. Sit on the sidelines. And we see that happening. We definitely see that happening a little bit. I will say that on the Propelex platform, our users tend to skew higher net worth. So I think we will make this information public. But last year, for example, as an example, the average investing user invested $73,000 through Propel X, across a number of maybe two 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 and a half opportunities was the average number. So they're investing big checks. They're not investing small checks. Those kind of people are not that impacted by market movements, right? They're waiting for the right opportunity. So their perspective is, oh, this means the valuations are going to fall a little bit. Let me just wait uh, for a month or two and then I will see. And the valuations may fall; they may stay the course. Historically, Propelex and we at PropelX have always been, you know, very careful about valuations, sensitive to valuations. We care about people making. Them. So we've always had companies that were reasonable. I felt, I felt, relative to market conditions at any given time. So hopefully, I mean, we haven't seen that much of a pullback on the platform, but I do hear that buzz, and I feel that if As human being to human being, if you're feeling scared, don't act. You couldn't do worse. I mean, I don't know if you could do worse than keeping your money by your side. Sure, you may lose out on some opportunity, but you may also not. You know, we don't know. The second thing is, I don't think things have shaken out just as of yet. It's too early. It's too early to be drawing these scary scary conclusions. It is not clear at all that there is going to be a recession. I don't think so. Yes, there is inflation, but we don't know. It may be, but that data is not there yet. Like, I'm not that worried about a recession. And I also think as an investor, I will be looking for opportunity. There's no doubt about that. And I'm happy to wait for the valuations to fall. We've all, I feel we've been reasonable and relative to revenues. If you still have you know, a certain multiple on your valuation, it makes sense. You have the revenues, it makes sense. But yes, companies with no revenues and these uh, sky-high valuations, which are complete garbage, those should be out. I've felt that for a long time. So it's about time <laughs> that that needs to happen.
0: You know. Thank you for all the insights, Swati. I, I get the privilege of going back. And listening to the, the, all the, po- the podcast and listening to what you had to say so I could uh, create the notes and um, I'm looking forward to doing that um, so so thank you very much for for being on the podcast and for introducing us to Propelx and talking about about everything that you you do and think about and, and breathe you know these these uh, deep tech technology uh, investments.
1: Thank you so much no it's a pleasure.
0: you know I want to add one more thing just for our audience. where can they Follow Propel X and where can they even, you know, learn more about you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, follow me on LinkedIn. Follow me on Twitter. I'm not that active on Twitter, but I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. And please join PropelX at PROPELX.com. And if you're an accredited investor, go through the process. It takes two minutes to join. If you're not accredited, please leave us your email because there may be something coming up for you. You know, there's reggae plus opportunities that we may be working on. Who knows? Not saying anything just as if yet.
0: <laughs> That's what's next uh, on Propelex. Swati Chaturvedi, CEO at Propelex. Thank you so much for, for joining us.
1: Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure. Thank you.
0: Same here. Take care. Listening to Swati was like attending a clinic on sound investment principles. She does this without hype and with plenty of tips for keeping a balanced point of view towards investing. And it's refreshing to hear in the alternative asset space. Another big thanks to Swati for joining the podcast and a big thanks to you for spending part of your day with us. If you enjoyed today's episode, let others know about it or leave a review or a comment. Until the next time, take care.